Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Help TVO create a better world through the power of learning. Visit TVO.org and make a tax-deductible donation today. The Ontario government earmarked almost $5 billion in funding over four years to help long-term care homes hire and retain care staff. It's since added additional millions in incentives to attract thousands to become personal support workers over the next few years. With us now on whether those efforts can overcome the PSW shortages still projected by the province's fiscal watchdog, let's welcome in St. Albert, Alberta, Charlene Stewart. She's president of SEIU Healthcare. That's a union representing more than 60,000 frontline healthcare workers. And here in our studio, Dr. Samir Sinha, director of geriatrics at Sinai Health, and Pat Armstrong, distinguished research professor emeritus of sociology at York University. And it's great to have you two here in our studio, you for the first time. Last time you were on Zoom. Nice to have you here in the flesh. And Charlene, good to see you uh, from points beyond out west. I want to start with you, if I can, Charlene, because I'd like you to start by characterizing, in your view, the usefulness of the $11 million in funding for PSWs. What's that going to do? Well, Steve, when I hear policies and announcements like this, I always have two measurements to go by. Is the plan or is the money that they're being proposed, is it going to be helpful and is the plan going to work? And obviously investing in training is going to be helpful, of course, but when staff are leaving faster than the staff are being hired, that leads me to think that the plan is not going to work. And we've had these incentives before. And of course, money is also always welcome but and people and the new PSWs would welcome the opportunity. But you have to take a look at the recruitment also. Like right now, our members are telling us that even when those new hires come in, there's still 50% turnover of staff on an annual basis. So that means that for every 10 PSWs working today, five of them will be gone by next year. And turnover among full-time staff is much lower, which is good, but part-time staff is much higher. And yet the part-time tend to make up over 60% of the workforce in those homes. So... We know the ones leaving are the ones who've been working the shortest. They tell us they won't work in these conditions. So until we fix the working conditions inside the homes, it just continues to be a revolving door of retention and recruitment. Pat Armstrong, can I get you to follow up on that in as much as as long as the conditions are the way they are, we're going to lose more than we retain? What are the conditions being referred to? We have long said the conditions of work are the conditions of care. And so it's about the residents as well as about the staff. And having a full-time job, as we just heard, is absolutely critical. And we're not changing that as far as I can see. Uh, And we need to have permanent part-time staff too. Uh, Everyone should have a secure job in this sector. We need to change a lot of other things too. In In addition to pay, we have to change the kind of power that the people who work there have. These are skilled workers. They should have more say about their work and how much work they get to do and what kind of work they get to do. What does that mean, more say? What do they need to have more control over? First of all, they have to focus on tasks defined by somebody else right now because there are so few staff. Now we're supposed to increase it to four uh, workers per resident per day. That's at 
a, a criterion that was set over two decades ago when we had far less com complexity in terms of uh, patients or residents, I should say. So that's got to be changed. That ha it has to be changed. It should be at least six, and it should even be more when we have the most complex care required. And we have to change in terms of allowing the staff to decide what needs to be done in terms of providing care so that they are, apply their skills and can respond to the individual needs of the residents. They don't make that call right now? Well, not when you have to rush and do 10 things before the next resident requires gotcha. something to be done. So you have to work nonstop. And years ago, we did surveys with staff, especially with PSWs in Ontario, who said that they couldn't get done what they needed to get done. And we need to do even more now. Mm. You know the, I mean, you work with them all the time. You know the people who go into this line of work. What, Absolutely. what prompts them to go into this line of work in spite of all of the difficulties around it? Well, I think if you're a PSW, if you're a nurse, if you're a physician, anybody who's in the area of healthcare, we're drawn to it because we want to help people. That's fundamentally it. And people want to figure out what is the way that I can contribute the skills and, 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 and really make a difference in people's lives. Fundamentally, I've never met a PSW, a personal support worker, who doesn't actually want to do the best they can for that individual. The challenge is what Charlene and Pat have said is, you know, is Pat's you know, famous quote, you know, is Dr. Armstrong, who's said, you know, the conditions of work are the conditions of care. When you actually don't allow people to actually have good, stable jobs, and, and this whole, this dynamic about part-time versus full-time work, why so many part-time workers? Because you don't necessarily have to pay them good benefits. Um, you don't have to give them all the other things that we would do that, say, nurses or other people working in hospitals have more secured, more full-time employment and benefits. So A, when you don't give people proper paying jobs with good benefits, when you actually don't give them good conditions, they're always working in short staff situations. It's a recipe for disaster. And that's why Charlene's saying, you know, you're more likely to lose more people than you gain Absolutely. in a given year. And it's a revolving door. So it's great there's more money to train more people, but just so they can leave in six months? No, hmm. we want to basically train more people and give them good work so that they can provide good care. I don't know if you have data on this, or, but I bet you can give us an educated guess if you don't have data. The gender split, women versus men in this line of work, what is it? Well, long-term care is primarily care for women by women, about 80% both ways. No kidding, 80%. Yes, absolutely. And I, I think this is one of the reasons we have the history of low pay is that we think that this is work that any woman can do in any way. Women don't, women don't really need the money. Uh, and we justified that low pay in those terms for a long time. And this is really skilled work. The training part is important to recognize how hard it is to do this work, but also how it is really important to have the knowledge required to do it. But I want to go back to this point, uh, too, about full-time work. It's absolutely critical for the residents as well. Yeah. And especially as, uh, as I'm sure you can tell us more about, for the majority of residents who will have dementia of some sort, having the same staff on a regular basis is absolutely critical to their care. You need to know if Mrs. Jones hates peas or not in order <laughs> to provide the care. Right. Or the kinds of violence that we hear about is much more common when you don't know that Mrs. Jones hates peas. And so it really works both ways in terms of 
uh, the residents and the staff. And the other thing we should be talking about is the high levels of violence against workers in this sector. And a lot of it comes from the fact that they don't have full-time jobs and they don't get to do the care in the way they know how to do the care because they're rushing all the time or told what to do or spend their time counting how many glasses of water Mrs. Jones has instead of being able to spend the time providing Mrs. Jones with the glasses of water. Uh, Charlene, let's talk about retention. And I guess if we're going to talk about retention, we need to talk about pay. Give us a sense about what somebody who's a new PSW can expect to earn on the job. Well, right now, the minimum wage we've asked the federal government and the, the provinces to implement a $25 an hour minimum wage. And that sums up to about $50,000 a year. That's minimum. I mean, of course, they should be making more than that. But at minimum, we've lobbied for $25 an hour. And you'll recall the province last year committed a $1.7 billion to the provinces to implement a $25 an hour wage increase. And not all provinces, including Ontario, are taking that money. So when you have announcements like, you know, the, the training is good, but when the federal government gives you the money to give minimum wage of $25, which would definitely be a help in the recruitment of the workers that have been there for a while, Ford's government won't even take it. And that's $25, which is the bare minimum. That's $50,000 a year. The cost of living right now with no rent control and a lot of these women who work in these facilities have to rent. They can't afford to buy their own home. Everything's just out of control. So $25 would amount to $50,000, which is still pretty small. And, and that's how about, what we've been lobbying for. What if you're a 10-year veteran of, of being a PSW? What can you expect to make then? Well, some are at $25 an hour, but home care is still down close to $19, $20 an hour. So you can't get much higher than 27 maybe in some of the long-term care homes. What do you think, Samir, it reasonably ought to be as an incentive to keep people in the field? Well, I think, again, it's, it's, a, it's about having a living wage, making sure that people who are very skilled, as we've talked about, are actually getting paid because this is really deeply complicated personal work. If you're working mostly with people living with dementia and you have to manage the care of a number of individuals, whether it be doing a series of home visits or other things, this is really, really highly skilled work. And when people say, you know what, I can go into an environment where it's not as difficult. I can, you know, for example, go and pour coffee or do other things and not face the violence that I might face, not have to, uh, you know, deal with the difficult issues that I have to see with every day. You know, that's why I agree that we need to pay a living wage. But as Charlene was also mentioning, you know, the other ironic thing about personal support workers working in our publicly funded sector, if you're working in a hospital, you're getting about $5 more an hour than if you're working in a publicly funded long-term care home. Who makes more $5 more an hour than a PSW working in a, um, in a in home care? And so why is a person with the same skill, and that happens with nursing and, and therapists as well, why do we not have wage parity in places like Ontario? Because other provinces that have done that, other countries that have done that, have much more stable workforces because then on top of this, it's not even just about having inadequate wages. I have so many PSWs who are amazing in the community who as soon as a job opens up in a long-term care home, take that. And then as soon as a job opens up in a hospital, they take that. That's why home care has the biggest shortage, long-term care homes the next, and hospitals are also struggling to recruit. They tend, Pat, to be an underappreciated part of our health care system and our elder care system. So maybe you should just take a moment here and tell us about the significance of a PSW to the 
quality of life for those they care for. I think we really underestimate what it takes to do the kind of work these people do and the kind of skilled work it is. I, I have sat so many hours watching a PSW help somebody eat. If that person has dementia, no teeth, is in danger of uh, choking, this, you really have to pay attention. But at the same time, you have to be providing them with social support, friendship, <laughs> feeling like real people. It's a complicated job, especially when everybody at that table has a different kind of issue and mm. you, you need to deal with all of them. The same as the bathing someone, it seems like, oh, you know, it's more than applying water to skin. Taking someone who has uh, probably some physical disability as well as uh, limited capacities in other areas to really even convince them <laughs> to have a bath, let alone carry out that job. And so it's really important to think through what kinds of work is involved and what kinds of skill is involved and what should we be paying for. Let me pick up on that with Charlene. Given the importance of this work and the sensitivity of this work, you would think that appropriate training would be absolutely key. Talk to us about what kind of training your members get. Right now, with the staff shortages, they have no time to be trained. The people that they're hiring right now don't even come in with the adequate training to be taking care of the complex types of care that you're now seeing in some of these long-term care homes. So, yes, as Pat said, I mean, dementia has become, you know, a, a, quite an issue inside these homes. A person with that kind of con condition needs to have at least two caregivers on them all the time. And you don't. I mean, the staffing levels are horrific. We are, we're never going to meet the four hours of care because of the staff so, or the staffing uh, shortage that we have. So, yes, there should be ongoing training. And if we had the proper amount of staff in there, then they could do in-service training right there inside the homes to be dealing with some of it. We can bring uh, trainers in, educators in to be doing that. We can be taking them out into some of the community education centers where they can upgrade. You know, like Pat said and, and Samir said, these women are skilled workers. PSWs are critically important. They're just as important as an RN. And they need to have the upgrading that goes along with the care that they're giving. You know, some of them don't want to upgrade to be RPNs. They want to do the PSW work because of the hands-on care that they give to their residents. So, yes, there is a need for upgrading uh, as the complex care keeps continuing to increase in those homes. Samir, on the issue of training, what would you add? You know, Again, this is deeply skilled work, and we have to remember these are some of the most vulnerable people in our society. And so it's amazing when I look at, when I talk to PSWs and say, so with the skilled work, with, with what you're doing in terms of feeding, bathing, working with a population, for example, in a long-term care home where two-thirds have dementia, and at least half of those people have what we call aggressive behaviors um, as well. That means you have to really know how to negotiate. I mean, even when Pat was talking about bathing, you know, a person who's living with dementia, think about if you have children, what bath time was like. It's a gong show. <laughs> so now doing that with someone who might have dementia and uh, has aggressive behaviors and doesn't know why you're touching them and what you're trying to do or that this is bath time. And that weighs takes, 200 pounds. <laughs> and weighs 200. This is deeply skilled work. And so one thing when we look at the quality of the training that we have in PSW colleges, like so personal support workers are a sector of our workforce that aren't necessarily regulated. So they don't necessarily, it doesn't mean that if you 
become a PSW, you've had to pass a certifying exam. You've demonstrated you've attained a certain skill set. You have to go to college for this? You can. But you but don't have to. But you don't have to. And there's lots of people. So you don't necessarily have to have a certain type of training. And it's not that the training is standardized so that you have a guaranteed knowledge set. And then it's not guaranteed that employers are going to invest the right amount of training that you need. And that's why we literally set people up to fail. Because if I send, you know, if I send the surgeon in to an OR and say, have a go at it, right? And they haven't had that training and that support they need. It's going to be a disaster. And that's why so many people, it's one of the main reasons why poorly paid and set up to fail. And then we're like, why Why is everyone leaving? Uh, okay, but the exa- I'll pick up uh, on, the, on the example you just gave with Pat, which is nobody would, nobody would think twice about the need for a surgeon about to perform a procedure needing to be well-trained at an important medical school. For some reason, a lot of PSWs, there are people who think of them as glorified babysitters, and they don't get that respect that their yeah. profession deserves. What do we do about that? Well, we assume, as you say, that because they're women, they know how to do this for the most part, because more than 80% of the staff are female, right? And we think, oh, well, they did it with their kids. Why can't they do it with uh, this older person who is uh, so frail and uh, has so many issues that that need to be dealt with? What do we do about it? I think we, uh, one of the things I used to suggest to the inspectors is they go in and spend a day, uh, live for 24 hours in a long-term care home, and maybe you'd get some kind of appreciation of what is involved in the work and be required to do the work for 24 hours a day. And it might really change the perception of that. The other issue I think that is linked to this that we really have to do something about is the scheduling. A lot of the temporary workers now, of course, as we know, are, what are we, what are we calling them now, traveling. Yeah, agency <laughs> okay, travel. And yeah. agency workers who um, don't know the resident, don't know the other staff. But one of the major reasons they take them is, is the pay. Yeah. But the other is the scheduling. That, and I, I'm sure Charlene can talk about this extensively, but having some say over your scheduling, knowing what your schedule is going to be like, knowing that you can trade shifts when your kid's graduating from school or whatever, can make a real difference to their lives. We, we have to realize that these are people with lives. We often forget that in terms of all of our discussion about PSWs and training. You want to pick up on that, Charlene? Yeah, absolutely right. Uh, the agencies have become a real problem inside these homes uh, because they are really transient caregivers, which does not help the residents at all. Again, with the complex care, the residents begin to depend on the same caregiver every day. But again, uh, it's back to the wages. They get better pay in the agencies, and they get a choice of not only what hours they work, but what homes they go to. So they're tending to go to the uh, you know, the better performing homes, the cleaner homes, the more better staffed homes. So there's a lot of flexibility there, but it's costing the province three times as much as it would cost if you paid a full-time PSW, $25 an hour, gave them benefits and retirement security. You know, I, I cite Pat Armstrong lots, you, you know, about the conditions of work or the conditions of care, but the prime minister said in his statement to PSWs when he told him about the $25 he was going to commit to. And I often will repeat this too. He said the most vulnerable in our society are being cared for by the second most vulnerable people in society. And 
that doesn't sound like the Canada I know. I mean, so we all have to have the will, starting with the politicians, to make this dignified work, respectable work, so that the the PSWs, the, the caregivers are safe and the residents are safe and well taken care of in those homes. Samir, you have surely had this conversation with numerous ministers of health, ministers of long-term care over the years. They know what the situation is like on the ground. Why isn't anything happening? I think a lot of it's money, right? You know, like who's going to pay for all this, right? And my answer is always you can't afford not to do these things because people think that, oh, well, you know, we'll just train more people. We'll just throw more people at this problem. But when you create the instability that we see, when you have a revolving door on the other end, and then you end up having to pay these agencies exorbitant costs so that you can just have bodies in the home, you know, so at least hopefully people won't die, but they'll, and they'll get basic care, but not necessarily good care. You know, people don't realize that this is actually costing us more to have a dysfunctional system than to actually stabilize things. And on top of that, when you actually you know, when personal support workers are the bulk of the providers of care in long-term care homes, in home care um, settings, and knowing that that care overall is actually less expensive to provide than expensive hospital care, this is why other countries that have really invested in their long-term care systems, in their home and community care, in their long-term care, given good dignified work, good wages, um, you know, and, 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 and good conditions, they just see much, like over, their healthcare costs overall are much better. But I think for a lot of politicians, they just kind of say $25 an hour. Do you, do you know what that's going to cost? And I'm like, Let's talk about the agency, you know, stuff that we're now seeing, where when you see what the bills are coming out for there, I mean, that's just eating up other things that aren't allowing us to provide the right care in the right place at the right time. Now, I gather, Pat, that there are some provinces in Canada which do regulate PSWs and certify. Is Ontario one of them? No. As Samir has just said, it isn't. Uh, They aren't uh, regulated and we haven't been paying them as well in Nova Scotia, I think it is, has mm-hmm. just made the wages the same in hospitals and in long-term care. Uh, it, there's absolutely no reason why you're paid less to do this job in long-term care. And you could argue that it's even harder to do in long-term care and in home care where you, where you work all alone <laughs> compared to working in a hospital. So if there was a difference in wages, maybe it should go the, diff- the other way, although I not suggesting that we lower the wages of anybody in healthcare. <laughs> okay, Charlene, uh, maybe we should bring in the Saskatchewan example here, because I gather you just had you just had a bit of a campaign out in Saskatchewan. Tell us what happened there and whether we can learn anything from it here. Well, Saskatchewan has had a universal wage rate for all healthcare workers for quite some time, um, back, I think, in the late 90s. So they really led the way there. And... Uh, you know, the shortage of PSWs, the question is, do we really have a shortage? Because, you know, the agencies are filling up with them. They're just not working in the full time. So, um, again, BC is another one. They did that during the pandemic. So, yeah, campaigning for universal wages for all healthcare workers across the, uh, a province definitely does show better outcomes for everyone. And workers stay in the field that they want to be in because they're not chasing the money. Have you had meetings with decision makers here in Ontario about that? Definitely. Many, many times. I keep saying every time there's a new minister of health, I knock on his door and, you know, bring solutions. And we're totally willing to work with the governments in power. But when you sit there with a minister of health and say, look, the feds have given you 
uh, Ontario, I think it was something like 680 million for PSWs. And they tell me back, we're not going to take it. We're not going to take the money. Like, what kind of a, a way is that to, to run the healthcare system when the feds that you ask for money give it to you, but yet they're not going to give it to the frontline workers? Well, what's the so explanation? It's Samir, what's the explanation there? I mean, I appreciate it. If you take federal money, there are strings that come attached. Is that the problem? Well, the strings are that, okay, we now need to pay everybody $25 an hour who's working as a PSW, primarily in home care and in long-term care. When you look at how many personal support workers that represents, we're talking about at least, you know, Charlene will have the better number, but we're talking probably a workforce of at least 100,000, you know, people. So, you know, you do the math and the, you know, and so you say, great, we have $600 million, but we have to pony up another billion. But I'm like, yeah, you do. And you know what you get with that billion? You're not spending billions more on agencies and, and overflowing hospitals because we couldn't care for people in their own homes or in long-term care homes. Because again, when that care is not being provided as it should, what do you do? Whoa, there's a crisis, call the ambulance, send them to the hospital. So people don't get what the big picture needs to be. And you know, we were talking about other provinces that have actually achieved wage parity. Don't forget about Quebec. Quebec has done the same thing as well. So this is, this is, we're not talking about crazy concepts that wouldn't work. Other provinces have figured this out. Other provinces should be paying a living wage as well. But we don't even have the fundamentals, I think, right here in Ontario to even start. There is this old expression about the squeaky wheel getting the grease. And we just noticed that uh, the post-secondary sector did a lot of screaming and got a billion three out of the province of Ontario. Not what they want, but... Not bad also. Do you have to just do a little bit more screaming in this line of work? Well, I thought there was an opportunity after the disaster that happened in long-term care that there would be an opening. During there would COVID, be a recognition, Yes. Yeah. That, or sorry, during COVID. Uh, a recognition that you needed to do something fundamental and basic. The other thing is we forget when we put money into long-term care, this money is like putting money into the car manufacturing. It gets spent by other people. It doesn't go into a hole somewhere. People have jobs. They, they send their kids to daycare. They do all kinds of things that actually contribute not only within the long-term care home, but outside it. Yet we treat the money we spend on these things as if it was put in a bucket and disappeared. It doesn't end up in a bank account in the Cayman yeah. Islands. It, yeah. it actually encourages and, and economic yet we're, growth we're here. We're prepared to invest in, in Toyota, <laughs> but but not in long-term care. And I think we should, uh, we, we, sh we really need to think about how important this is. And as Charlene says, and, and Samir as well, that we're already putting a whole lot of money that in useless ways. We need to be spending them in the ways we know that work. We know how to improve the conditions. We need to, we can learn. We've, we've done research in Norway and Sweden and Germany, and their conditions are so much better than ours. Well, can you pick up on that, Samir? Because you were telling us earlier off camera that you took a trip to Denmark not too long ago. What'd you find? Yeah, like, like many of the Nordic countries, you know, that have, again, like Canada, you know, they're aging populations. They know that increasingly more and more people are going to need long-term care services, whether that be in your own home or in a, in a care institution like a long-term care home. So when you need more of this care, you need to make sure that these the sector is appropriately staffed. And this is where you'll find living wages being paid. You'll find that most of the workers are being offered full-time work. They actually are 
getting the right training. And when you actually go to these places, and I've taken ministers, you know, I've, I took four ministers of health the other year to Denmark to one of these homes, and I had a I had a good deal of fun because I was saying, so um, so we have. 10 residents on this floor. And how many staff do we have currently working on the floor? They said, three. They said, well, we have a one to one to three, one to four ratio. And I said, right, and minister, I won't name the minister, but I'm like, right, and minister, what's our ratio in Ontario? Oops, sorry, did I name the wrong province? Um, the uh, And they're like, well, it's maybe one to eight, one to, and they were or horrified. More. They said, well, how do you even provide the care, you know, because this is the this is the level of staffing, and this is what you know Pat and I and others were developing the new national standards, saying we need to be meeting at least that four hour day minimum. And while provinces like Ontario have said we're going to meet that, Nova Scotia, Manitoba is talking about three point nine. You know, the problem is they can't even staff these homes because they're not meeting those fundamentals to even get there. Well, from the Department of uh, a word of the wise is sufficient. Let's hope someone's listening. That's our time, uh, Mr. Director. Can I see? a three-shot of our guests. There they are from right to left. Charlene Stewart from SEIU Healthcare. Thanks for joining us on the line from St. Albert, Alberta. Dr. Samir Sinha from Sinai Health. Pat Armstrong, Professor Emeritus, York University. Great to have you all on TVO tonight. Many thanks. Thank you. The Agenda with Steve Pakin is made possible through generous philanthropic contributions from viewers like you. Thank you for supporting TVO's journalism.